A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone. My name is Sebastian Major, and I'm the host of Our Fake History, As any fan of the history of Byzantium can tell you, the historical record is not always what it seems. It's all too easy for myths, misconceptions, and all-out fabrications to take root in the popular imagination and become what's roundly accepted as real history. On Our Fake History, we dig deeper into these historical myths and try and determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. Every two weeks, we're either debunking wild historical rumors, like the old chestnut that Queen Elizabeth was really a man, exposing pseudo-histories, like the occult fantasies written about the so-called Spear of Destiny, or diving into timeless legends like Theseus and the Minotaur and the Trojan War to determine whether or not there's a kernel of truth hiding behind the myths. You can find the show at OurFakeHistory.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes or on any other podcast app. Now, I'll turn you over to your capable host, the smoothest voice in history podcasting, Mr. Robin Pearson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 112, The Frontier. Last time we discussed the dissolution of the Islamic Caliphate, the giant empire which had so often threatened to end Byzantium's existence, was now in retreat. This is undoubtedly good news for the Romans, but as I mentioned last time, it was not apparent, even by 912 AD, that this was what the future held. All the Byzantines knew was that caliphal armies hadn't been seen in a very long time. So as we saw under Basil and Leo, they began to inch forward. They began to test the defences of the Arab border towns. Today, we need to examine what the eastern frontier looked like, who lived there, how they felt about the changing situation, what the challenges would be for the Roman Empire once they realised that the caliphate was gone for good and there was an opportunity, at last, to reverse their fortunes. This is a very important episode to pay attention to, because the lands we're discussing today will be the focus of events for the next century. Let's begin with a question. 
Listener ST asks, what was the status of Armenia? What became of that eternal border between Romania and Persia? Why did the Armenians remain stalwart Christians while most Syrians and Iraqis converted to Islam? Did it still have diplomatic relations with Constantinople? I've become more curious about this country since the expeditions of Heraclius. It's true to say that I've largely ignored the details of Armenian life since the final war between Rome and the Sassanids, the main reason being that Armenian politics have been largely irrelevant to the wider conflict between Byzantium and the Arabs. That is no longer the case, so let's backtrack and bring you up to speed. If you are 112 episodes into the history of Byzantium and you aren't quite sure where Armenia is, then seriously, you need to go and have a look at the maps. I've updated the main map just for this occasion. Check out the maps page at the website. Top right of the page is the link. I'm sure you know where and what Anatolia is, and eastern Anatolia rises slowly into the Armenian range. There isn't a clearly defined demarcation between the two, and those mountains connect directly to the Taurus Mountains to the south. Without those two ranges, Anatolia would have been conquered, and then Constantinople would have fallen. As you may remember from the history of Rome, Armenia was indeed the eternal buffer kingdom between Persia and the Empire. The reason it was never fully absorbed into either state is that it's entirely mountainous. Transcaucasia in general is a land of fragmented and harsh conditions. We're talking about Lazica, Iberia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Mountain peaks rise to between three and 5,000 metres. The plains in between can be over 1,500 themselves. Short summers are often followed by bitterly cold winters with heavy snowfall. Much of the land is therefore unprofitable and not easy for outsiders to manage. The high mountains also allow the locals opportunities to hide and escape the outside world. This isolation meant that there were seven different Armenian dialects known to us in the 8th century. The conclusion, which the great powers often drew, was that it was impossible to turn the whole area into a province. It was better to work with the locals to ensure a balance of power. Certainly the Romans and Persians felt this way, and they settled for a political division of Armenia, which ensured that neither side could control the whole thing. The conversion of most of Armenia to Christianity in the 4th century had the potential to upset this balance of power. Naturally, we would assume that this would make the men of the Caucasus more sympathetic to their co-religionists in the West, but in practice, the Armenians were quite happy keeping their neighbours at arm's length, and had no interest in becoming just another Roman province. You see, the fragmented landscape of Armenia led to a fragmentation of political power. Between the peaks were pockets of good fertile land, 
some along river valleys, some around the lakes, Van and Savan, others feeding off the alluvial soil left behind by extinct volcanoes. Each of these plains, somewhat isolated from their neighbours, provided a local family with their own small fiefdom. This produced various petty kings up in Lazica and Iberia, while down in Armenia it led to a system of hereditary lordships known as Naxaras. Each Naxarar was lord of his valley or his mountain, and his family competed to keep or increase their holdings against the claims of, say, half a dozen neighbouring Naxaras. Some families became dominant over others, briefly holding royal titles, but the balance of power was always shifting so that no Armenian state emerged. According to historian Mark Witto, the values of the Naxarar houses, aristocratic, warlike, independent, proud of their sworn loyalty to a lord, but always willing to betray an outsider for the greater good of the family, dominated Armenian society. Rather than unite together to maintain Armenian independence, the history of the area often saw local Naxaras court the interference of Rome or Persia to help halt the growing power of their neighbours. And though the influence of Roman or Persian can be seen in Armenian culture, the outsiders were never fully embraced. Despite their conversion to Christianity, the head of the Armenian church rejected the Council of Chalcedon, taking a position closer to Monophysitism. Though he did not speak for the beliefs of every Armenian, it was a decision which would keep the Caucasians distant from the Orthodox Church as it went through its various crises across the course of this podcast. With the arrival of the Arabs, the Armenians continued their traditional policy of playing outside forces off against one another. The initial Arab raids were frightening enough that terms were accepted from Muawiyah in 653 for submission to the caliphate. However, the Byzantines would contest this, and you may recall both Constans II and Justinian II campaigning there, trying to forge an alliance that would keep the Muslims out of the mountains. During the build-up to the siege of Constantinople in 717, though, Armenian resistance was brutally crushed. An Arab garrison would move into the mountains to ensure their cooperation. Following the failure of the siege, the caliphs began planning for a permanent border between the houses of war and peace. Not only did they help settle Cilicia in the south, but they encouraged Arab colonists to move directly into Armenia. This wasn't an attempt to overwhelm the local culture, but it was designed to make sure that the key garrisons along the frontier were all manned by Islamic soldiers. Melitine was a major site for Arab settlement, both inside the fortress town and in the fertile plains surrounding it. Kamacha, further north, was another, not far from Tefriki, and further east, new emirates grew up around Lake Van and on the borders with Azerbaijan. 
Muslim garrisons also expanded in the major urban centres, Tiflis in the north, Dovin in the centre, and Theodosiopolis, close to the Roman border. The new immigrants found life in the mountains difficult. They couldn't easily communicate with one another, let alone folks back home. Quickly, therefore, the new Arab settlements adapted to traditional Armenian politics. They had to forge bonds with their nearest neighbours in order to survive. Their concerns became about local affairs, rather than the distant problems of Baghdad. So as the 9th century wore on, these local Arab communities became increasingly independent, at the same time that the caliphate was in decline. These small emirates, as we call them because their governor was the emir, were now isolated from the wider Muslim world and forged their own path. They remained determinedly anti-Byzantine. Their role as both defenders of the caliphate and instruments of jihad were important to their identity. But they couldn't afford to be anti-Armenian. Eventually, the tide will turn to the point where these small pockets of Islamic culture will be threatened with annihilation by the Romans. Under that kind of pressure, some of the leading families would intermarry with the local Armenians, adopting their faith in order to ensure a better future for their children. That was not necessarily a common solution, I should stress, but that was now a more likely future than Armenians converting to Islam. This brings us to listener ST's question about conversion. Why did the Armenians remain a Christian people, where so many others adopted the religion of their conquerors? In Syria and Egypt, the locals and the new arrivals lived side by side. Rubbing shoulders every day, it became obvious that if you wanted to be a first rather than a second-class citizen, it was better to be a Muslim. Whereas up in the mountains of Armenia, the traditions of the local population were not seriously challenged. Even as Arab settlement increased, central control began to dwindle. In fact, over time, the caliphs in Baghdad preferred to appoint Armenians as governors of the whole area, rather than Arabs. Why? Because the Armenian was grateful for the appointment and would work hard to maintain his dominance over his fellow Armenians, whereas a Muslim governor might become powerful enough to march on Baghdad, or at least to become involved in a civil war. So there never really was a strong incentive for the Armenians to convert. On a couple of occasions, they did rebel and were viciously suppressed. But in the aftermath of those conflicts, the caliphs showed themselves happy to simply appoint different Armenians to positions of power rather than disempower them. In the 9th century specifically, three Armenian families had seen their local power grabs approved of by the caliphate. You can see them on the map the Bagratuni in the west, the Artsruni in the southeast, and another branch of the Bagratuni family in the north. 
If you don't look at the map, this may not make a whole lot of sense, but hopefully you're absorbing a picture of fragmentation. By 912 AD, the caliphs had gone the whole hog and made the leading man of the Bagratuni family king of Armenia. But in the face of the crumbling authority of Baghdad, it was left to the Bagratuni to enforce their own will. In practice, then, the stronger Armenian clans continued to act independently, as did the local Arab emirates and garrisons. No one knew that the caliphate was in freefall. Armenian and Arab alike assumed that the centre would be powerful again at some point and remained nominally loyal. But on the ground, the situation was changing and the possibility of a resurgent Byzantium was creating ripples. Before we explore those, though, let's just pause and remind ourselves that the Byzantines were well acquainted with the talents of Armenians. In that quote I read earlier from Professor Witto, he mentioned that Armenian culture was militaristic. The small pockets of fertile land were so valuable that the men of each house had to be ready to fight for it. In Anatolia, a farming family could be entirely civilian. Their taxes paid for a professional army to defend their lands, whereas in Armenia, almost all men had to be ready to serve. But they weren't always needed. Good land in Armenia was in short supply, whereas a family might produce several sons, where really they could only provide an inheritance for one or two. Armenia's greatest export was therefore mercenary soldiers. Tough, independent men trained to fight would leave their homes and seek military service in the armies of their neighbouring states. Byzantium was a natural choice for many of these migrants, and we've encountered dozens of them in the narrative. Narses, Justinian's eunuch, Maurice and Heraclius's families were likely connected to Armenia, Vardan the Armenian was briefly emperor, Artavasdos, Leo III's ally who then turned on Constantine V, Alexius Musel, leading up to the past century, of course, when people of Armenian stock dominated the stage. Vardan Turkus, Leo the Armenian, John the Grammarian, the Empress Theodora, Manuel, Arsaba, Photius, Basil the Macedonian, Stylianos Zotsis, and so on. Some came from Armenia direct into Byzantine service, others came as refugees or relocated voluntarily, some were born Romans to parents who had come from Armenia. The Christian faith of the Armenians clearly helped smooth a path into Roman life, and despite the occasional racist comment made against them in the sources, it was common for Armenians to be welcomed to the capital and trusted as allies against the caliphate. So, as the Islamic Empire demonstrated signs of decline in the past half-century, the emperors returned to their traditional policy of seeking alliances in the Transcaucasus. It only made sense to see if friendly Naxaras could be brought on side to help battle the annual raids 
from the Muslims. It's funny because as I was noting down the sequence of events, I wondered to myself, why would the Byzantines risk interfering in Armenia if they still believed that the caliphate might return and crush them? But then I realised that the sack of Amorium in 838 was 74 years in the past by 912 when our narrative ended. The men and women who remembered that defeat were long gone. Even their children might have passed on by 912. I suppose every new generation forgets the horrors that have gone before and seeks advancement wherever they can find it. It was in the 850s that the Byzantines began to notice a change in the forces invading from the mountains. No longer were the annual raids so well equipped or so numerous. More and more it became obvious that serious attacks would only come from two directions, Melitene and Tarsus. Tarsus is just across the Taurus range in Cilicia. Their raids would often pass through the Cilician gates and straight into Cappadocia. Melitene sits on a fertile plain just between the two ranges, the most convenient passes leading them towards Chasianum and the Armeniacon theme. Slowly, the eastern themes felt confident in handling these invaders. They couldn't stop the raids, but central Anatolia was rarely under threat. Local forces would shadow the raiders and harass them until they left. If the Tachmata were in the field, the Romans would usually emerge victorious. The victory which seemed to mark a turning point was Uncle Bardas's triumph over the forces of Melitene in 863. So many enemy soldiers were killed in the rout that the emir was no longer able to stand and fight Byzantine field armies. Of course, the Romans created their own new foe by forcing the Paulicians to convert or rebel. But when Basil's armies captured Tefriki in 879, it brought Byzantine troops directly into the Armenian mountains. Between these victories and several daring raids across the frontier, it was obvious that the Romans were a force in the region again and several Naxaras began to wonder if it might be worth seeking the emperor's friendship rather than worry too much about the caliph. In 872, a number of small Armenian clans switched their allegiance from the emir of Melitene to the emperor Basil. They would now accept Roman cash in exchange for making their lands and men available to the imperial armies. Just over a decade later, another family, living north of Melitene, made contact with Leo VI to make a similar deal. And around the same time, the northern branch of the Bagratuni also made overtures to the emperor. Asot the Long-Armed, one of the leading men of that family, travelled to Constantinople to swear allegiance to Leo. As you can see on the map, this northern branch were as far from the caliphate as an Armenian could be, making this move possible. One of Asot's lieutenants was a man named Melias, whose career serves as a good example of the changing times. Melias followed his master to the Roman capital and gladly signed up to work with the empire. In 896, when war broke out with Bulgaria, Asot and Melias were called up to fight in the Balkans, 
they were in the army which was defeated by Simeon's forces at Bulgarophagon. Assot died, but Melius survived. He returned to Armenia and began working with the Stratikos of Charsianum. He knew the men of the mountains to the west of Melitene and slowly began to carve out a local lordship over them. By 912, he had been so successful that the Emperor Leo acknowledged his work by promoting the whole area into a klesura, a mountain pass command of the imperial army. We'll discuss the Roman military in a future episode, but this klesura of Lecandos was essentially a new piece of Roman territory. Melius would be its commander and lord and receive an imperial salary. This process was slowly taking place all along the border as Leo encouraged local Armenians to become Roman clients in exchange for cash. This slow isolation of Melitene and the Arab towns beyond it was fine diplomatic work on the part of Leo and his eastern commanders. Back in the last episode of the narrative, I said that I would aim to rehabilitate Leo's military image after the sack of Thessalonica and the failure to retake Crete. Here is where his work was done. By the time of his death, Byzantium had begun to convert the men of the nearer mountains into allies, which would greatly aid the move to conquer the mounted passes and put an end to the raids on Anatolia. Though these might seem like small steps, bringing Armenian manpower into the empire's armies was crucial if the Romans planned on creating a new, safer world for themselves. Basil and Leo cultivated good relations with all of the various Armenian families, including those whose loyalties still lay with the caliphate. Times were changing, and it did no harm to send out good vibes toward distant lords who might one day prove useful. Because of their willingness to cooperate, the Armenians made themselves the first port of call in the voyage of Roman revival. It made more sense to begin work here, with all these potential allies, than it did to, say, attack Cilicia. Cilicia is another place you should know, the patch of fertile lands just beyond the Taurus Mountains in southeast Anatolia. On the other side of the plain were more mountains which led into Syria, so this pocket of territory had been bitterly contested during the 7th century. But after the failure of the siege of 717, it had been colonised by Muslim settlers and had been the primary base for raids on Anatolia ever since. I won't go into a long description of the area, as I already did back in episode 90, but I will remind you that the area was dominated by the Emir of Tarsus, with support from neighbouring cities like Mopsuestia and Sisium. Despite having their funding for jihad cut by the caliphs, volunteers for holy war still arrived here each spring and their raids could do serious damage if they were unopposed by Roman forces. Unlike the isolated emirs up in Armenia, the people of Cilicia were well connected to the rest of the caliphate, both by land to Syria and Mesopotamia, and by sea to Palestine 
and Egypt. The Romans were therefore reluctant to attempt any serious attacks on the area, lest it provoke larger reprisals. They did repeatedly attempt to sack Tarsus, the nearest city to the mountains, in the hopes that they could cripple its army the way they'd done with Melitene. But up to 912, they were unsuccessful. The final piece of the Borderlands puzzle, as far as it concerns us, are the string of forts beyond the mountains. They've featured regularly in the narrative for a long while now. Adata, Germanicia, and Samosata. They guarded northern Syria and provided a launch pad for further raids across the Taurus Mountains. Like their cousins in Cilicia and Armenia, their identity was provided by their role as defenders of the faith and raiders of Anatolia. Their position behind the lines, and therefore more connected with the rest of the caliphate, meant there was no sense of compromise with the Romans. They knew what a threat the Byzantines could be, and continued to work hard to maintain their position and those of their allies in the mountains. I've mentioned several times that the Arab tribes of Syria went into revolt at the same time that Thomas the Slav's rebellion was happening. Nasser, the leader of the Arab group, discussed the idea of an alliance with the Byzantines to help defeat the incoming caliphal forces. But his men refused to consider it. The idea of working with their eternal enemy against fellow Muslims was not to be considered an anecdote which should inform our view of the Arab border towns. Though you know that the caliphate won't exist anymore come mid-century, the people living on the border did not know that. They would fight to keep it alive and would go on resisting the Roman advance even after it became inevitable. By 912, all these border peoples were coming to terms with a changing situation. The large-scale raiding and sacking of earlier centuries was no longer easy to achieve. Without the support of a caliphal army, the raiders were far more vulnerable to counterattack. And as we saw in the last couple of decades, when the Tachmata were involved, the enemy were likely to be beaten. Professional Roman cavalry were now too strong to be messed with, and with Armenians switching sides, the mountain passes were becoming less safe than they'd ever been. And yet, slavery and livestock rustling were an important part of life in the borderlands, connected both to people's identities and their economic way of life. This was being challenged by the changing political landscape. Many prisoners taken on these raids could not be sold off as slaves. They had to be kept nearby in order to be exchanged for Muslim captives that had been taken in Roman raids. On both sides of the border, stock farming had become the norm, as opposed to crops which could be stolen or destroyed. And one study concluded that during this era, some Arab farmers may have begun to simply move their flocks onto Roman land to graze, and then claim it as a raid. Cappadocian farmers had already moved to higher ground to avoid being targeted, 
leaving lowland abandoned, which the enemy could now use once their own planes had been worn out. By moving to and from the enemy's fields, armed guards watching over the animals, men could say they were continuing the tradition of their ancestors without running the risk of running into the actual soldiers of the Anatoly Khan. This way of life for people on both sides of the border is a topic we'll return to in future episodes. For now, though, I think we have a fairly solid picture of life on the eastern frontier. It was a time of great insecurity as well as opportunity. Certainly, it's a much rosier picture for the Romans than we've dealt with in a long time. But I don't think it yet felt that way back in Constantinople. Several attempts to take Melitene and Tarsus had failed with heavy losses. Both cities were well fortified and the towns beyond them had rallied to their aid. Less raiding was good, but perpetual war was still the status quo. It would be another generation before Romans, Armenians and Arabs alike would begin to realise that the world really had changed. Next time, we travel west to visit the realm of the Franks and see what happened to Charlemagne's empire after his death. But before we go, may I recommend Our Fake History as a podcast you should check out. You heard Sebastian give a very kind intro to the show today. I don't see how I could possibly touch the uh, brooding baritone of Jordan Harbour. But anyway, if you ever need to remind yourself of the other podcasts uh, and other podcasters who've introduced this show, then I link to them at thehistoryofbyzantium.com on the right-hand menu. I think you'll like the approach of our fake history very much. Examining well-known historical ideas or claims to see what truth lies behind them, it's a quest that's led to some of my favourite moments from this podcast. I'm very much enjoying the episodes about Joan of Arc, right now but there are plenty of others to choose from so go check them out at ourfakehistory.com or in your podcast marketplace of choice planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 